an exuberant and family-oriented computer expert, taking steps to build a solid home life in Iowa for her and her teenage son. But when this hard-working single mom suddenly abandons that life and everyone in it, her own digital footprint would lead to a diabolical series of events that no one saw coming. This is the case of Carrie Farver. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of Crime Cave. I'm Christy, and there is so much information about this case, but it's typically told with most of the focus being on the perpetrator rather than the subject of our story. And I have to believe it's simply because the crimes in this case are so diabolical that they naturally take all the focus. But I wanted to put the spotlight on Carrie Farver. To be honest, I couldn't find a whole lot of information about Carrie's life on the internet or other sources. But I'm going to do my best to put the focus back on Carrie. Because by all accounts, she really was a phenomenal human being. So let's get to know Carrie Farver. Carrie Leah Farver was born November 30th, 1974 in Loa, California, and was lively, fun, and very intelligent. People seemed to be drawn to her. At the age of 23, Carrie gave birth to a son, whom she named Max, and would raise him as a single mom. Max was everything to her. She would never miss a chance to encourage him and talk about the latest thing he was doing. Along with being a warm, loving, hard-working mom, Carrie was a spitfire, a free spirit, strong-willed, super confident, and fiercely devoted to her family. She was especially close with her mom, Nancy Rainey. Carrie's friendships were also very important to her. When a friend of hers found himself having a tough time one New Year's Eve, she wouldn't let him wallow. Instead, she dragged him to an ugly tie party, and he ended up having a beautiful night. She was that kind of friend. By her late 20s, Carrie was diagnosed with depression and then eventually bipolar disorder. But she made sure to manage it with therapy and medications and got on with life. By 2012, 37-year-old Carrie was in a really good place. She had her dream job as a computer programmer and was raising 14-year-old Max, who was a thriving high school student in Macedonia, Iowa, just a few minutes from her mom, Nancy. She was also dabbling in the dating scene. It was the fall of 2012 when Carrie first met 36-year-old Dave Krupa when she brought her Ford Explorer into a car repair shop near her place of employment. She was the new customer and he was behind the service desk, but there was an undeniable spark. And it wasn't long before they set up their first date. Here's a little about Dave. Dave Krupa described himself as a mundane blue-collar guy and lived in Omaha, Nebraska. He had been in a long-term relationship with a woman named Amy Flora, and the two had a son and a daughter together. But by 2012, after over a decade together and no marriage proposal on the horizon, the couple had separated. Dave felt pretty rusty at the dating scene and decided the internet was the way to go. Dave may be mundane, but he had no shortage of company. He dated between 30 to 40 women during that period, including a 37-year-old woman named Shanna Elizabeth Golier. She went by Liz. 
She was also a single parent of a son and daughter, and she had her own business called Liz's House Cleaning. Dave thought she was very pretty, and in the spring of 2012, they set up a date. By date number four, the relationship had escalated and they started having sex. But Dave was up front with Liz, telling her that he wanted to continue seeing other women. When she started getting a little too clingy, Dave broke it off with Liz around Halloween. Then, in walks Carrie Farber into his shop. Dave couldn't believe his luck and marveled at how a woman as brilliant and beautiful as Carrie Farber would go out with him. They went to dinner on their first date then went back to his place and had sex. Before Dave could utter his usual disclaimer, he was stunned when Carrie was the one to say, Look, if we're going to be doing this, you need to know we're just having fun. I don't want anything serious. Dave thought he hit the jackpot. Carrie typically had a 45-minute commute to work, but Dave's place was five minutes from her office. About a week into their casual arrangement, when Carrie was tasked with a big project at work, Dave was so taken with her that he offered to let her stay at his place during the week out of convenience. The two adults were enjoying their mutual, no-strings-attached relationship and zero drama. Liz had even shown up at Dave's place unannounced one morning to pick up some of her things, without incident, even passing Carrie in the hallway as she left Dave's apartment. And no words were exchanged. Life was good. On the morning of November 13th, 2012, Carrie was up extra early working on her laptop before she had to go in. As Dave was ready to head out, he kissed Carrie goodbye, told her he'd see her that evening, and headed off to work. Dave was in the middle of his workday, when he suddenly received a text from Carrie. Let's move in together. Dave was stunned. This completely came out of left field, and Dave replied with, That's not happening. He then received another text from Carrie that read, Fine, I hate you. You ruined my life. Dave was absolutely shocked and didn't know what to make of this complete turnaround. After a little more back and forth, Dave realized, well, I guess I just dodged a bullet with that one and figured he'd just move on with his life. Meanwhile, Carrie's mother, Nancy, also received a bizarre text from her, stating, I'm taking a new job in Kansas. Take care of Max. Nancy was understandably speechless and confused. She made several attempts to contact her by phone, but Carrie would never pick up. When Carrie failed to show up on her half-brother's wedding day on November 16th, three days later, Nancy knew something was definitely wrong and officially reported her daughter missing. While speaking with the Pottawatomie County Sheriff's Office, Nancy mentioned that Carrie had been diagnosed with bipolar but was regularly taking her medication. It was at that point that the police seemed to discount the seriousness of her disappearance claiming that they know how this normally goes. Someone stops taking their meds and they go off the deep end. But Carrie's friends and family knew that she wasn't some ping pong ball. She wasn't all over the board. The investigation into her disappearance seemed to go nowhere. And it wasn't only Dave and Carrie's friends and family that were receiving texts from Carrie's phone. Dave's on-again, off-again girlfriend, Liz Golier, was receiving them as well. Such as, Dave's mine. 
I love Dave. I hate you. Liz also found some graffiti inside her garage that read, Whore from Dave. Liz then contacted Dave and blamed him for bringing Carrie Farver into her life. The two suddenly had a lot in common. Both were receiving creepy and threatening messages from Carrie, and they subsequently grew closer and began dating again. But for Carrie's family, the situation was becoming much more worrisome. Her son Max's 15th birthday passed with no word from Carrie, and she missed her father's death and funeral. While Liz and Dave were rekindling their relationship, both continued to receive rage-filled messages and misspelled rants, which were extremely out of character for Carrie. One text would say, We belong together, Dave. Then another would say, I hate you. Followed by, Oh, I love you so much, we should have babies. One of the things that was so disturbing for her mom was that Carrie was a stickler for not only positivity, but punctuation. And these text messages were void of either. In January of 2013, two months after her disappearance, Dave noticed a familiar car in a nearby parking lot while coming home from work. It looked like Carrie's Ford Explorer. He took a photo of the license plate and sent it to police. The car did belong to Carrie. Investigators searched the vehicle, finding only a single fingerprint on a mint container on the console. But it wasn't Carrie's. However, the print wasn't in the FBI National Database. Meanwhile, Dave had gotten an email from Carrie threatening to kill Liz with a photo attached of a woman tied up in the trunk of a car. Dave, of course, called Liz to check on her, and she confirmed she was fine, replying with, You're so sweet. Thanks for checking on me, handsome. Dave would later receive a link to a fake obituary for Liz. One beacon of hope arrived in April of 2013, five months after Carrie's disappearance, when Nancy said a man called her to tell her he'd seen Carrie at a homeless shelter and that he wanted Nancy to pick her up. Nancy was shaking and thought, oh my God, we're going to bring her home. Nancy raced over to the shelter and investigators met her there. But they learned that Carrie had never been there. Nancy said it was such a letdown and that she was just devastated. She knew somebody was playing games. Six months after her disappearance, her son Max decided to message his mother's Facebook account to see what would happen. She messaged back. Hey, little man, how are you? He asked her to answer three questions to prove that it was really her. Number one, what was his middle name? Number two, what was the name of their first dog, their boxer? And number three, what was Max's best friend's name? She never responded to that message. Dave continued to see Liz off and on. And it became a regular pattern that when they were sitting together watching television, they would both receive threatening messages from Carrie. But by August of 2013, the situation was becoming even more dire. Liz's home had burned down. Fortunately, neither Liz or her children were in the home at the time. But her four pets, two dogs, a cat, and a snake, died in the fire. Liz told police she knew who did it that it was Carrie Farver and that she was upset that Liz was dating Dave. 
Police were investigating this fire as an arson and trying to get to the bottom of it, as Dave continued to get tens of thousands of texts and emails from Carrie. Over time, the texts from Carrie seemed to slow down a bit. Dave changed apartments, spent more time dating other women, and spent less time with Liz. By April of 2015, Carrie's case got picked up by a different team of detectives. One decided to approach it from the angle of, Carrie was still out there and actually sending these messages. And the other detective approached it from the angle that Carrie was dead and someone was impersonating her. Now remember, there were two investigations going on. One, a missing persons report on the Iowa side, and two, a harassment report on the Nebraska side. However, this case got even more complicated when in December of that year, three full years after Carrie disappeared, Liz called 911, stating someone shot her in the leg while she was at a park. 911. And told police she suspected Amy as being the one impersonating Carrie all these years. But that was Liz's attempt at trying to eliminate Amy from the equation, because apparently Amy and Dave were talking about getting back together for their kids. Investigators put together that all the harassment reports coming from Liz were directed at her two romantic rivals, and she kept inserting herself into this case. Under the guise of investigating the harassment claims further, police requested her phone for data analysis, and she agreed. Here's what they found. Liz used a proxy server to send tens of thousands of text messages and emails under Carrie's ID. She also used an app that allowed text messages to be scheduled for a future time so she could randomly receive them while she was with Dave. Liz had taken a photo of Carrie's vehicle prior to her disappearance, and she had also called Carrie's cell phone using Star 69 shortly after passing her in the hallway on that fateful day in November 2012. By this point, investigators believed that Liz Golier had murdered Carrie Farver, but they needed concrete evidence to prove it. It should be noted that while Carrie's mother was grappling with the ongoing devastation of not knowing the reason for her daughter's absence, she would have a very vivid dream a few weeks after Carrie's father passed away. He came to her in the dream and said, Nance, it's okay. She's with me. Nine days after the shooting, Sergeant Jim Doty asked Liz to come in, stating they agreed with her theory that Amy Flora was behind all of this. My mind kind of leads to if somebody be bold enough to shoot you, that was Amy. Mm -hmm. It 
it doesn't take a lot of steps in your head to go maybe bold enough to do something to somebody else, possibly carry. Right. I was hoping that maybe you had a message or something or received something uh, that she said, hey, you know, I'm going to do you in like I did carry you. And what do you know? Liz suddenly started receiving lots of text messages from Amy detailing how Carrie had been stabbed to death in her own car. When investigators searched the vehicle again, this time pulling off the fabric from the seats, they discovered that the passenger side cushion was stained with a large amount of blood, and the fingerprint on the mint container matched Liz. A search of Liz's home turned up several of Carrie's possessions, But the most damning piece of evidence was an SD card from an old tablet Liz had used that was found in Dave's storage unit. On it was a photo of a decomposing foot with a unique tattoo that matched Carrie's. It was the Chinese symbol for mother. Although Carrie's body has never been found, Liz Golier was charged with murder on December 22, 2016. The prosecution theorized that Liz stabbed Carrie to death within 24 hours of her disappearance to get rid of her romantic rival and have Dave all to herself. Liz Gullier was found guilty of first-degree murder and also of second-degree arson for burning her own house down and killing her pets. She's incarcerated at the Nebraska Correctional Center for Women. Now, we're all human, And I get that romantic jealousy is an unpleasant emotion to grapple with. But it's estimated that Liz spent 40 to 50 hours a week on this diabolical scheme for at least three years. She had two young children. Who was taking care of them? The good news is Max was raised by his grandmother, Nancy Rainey, and earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Software Engineering and Data Science from Iowa State University. He hopes his computer programmer mom would be proud. And now for today's listener question. Okay, today's question is from Eva, and she wants to know, have I ever wanted to get into detective work? Yeah, it's crossed my mind. About 20 years ago, I considered going for my master's in forensics and criminal justice, but I ended up taking a different path, which ultimately led me to creating Crime Cave, so it's all good. Thanks for your question, Eva. Hey, everybody, it's Ray the Roadie. And this is Hollywood Mike with the Rock and Roll Chicago Podcast, coming to you from the Illinois Rock and Roll Museum on Route 66 in Joliet, Illinois, where once a week we are interviewing local musicians and singer-songwriters, and the podcast itself covers a wide range of topics, including, but not limited to, the history of rock and roll in Chicago, the current state of the scene, and the challenges and opportunities facing musicians today. So join us every Tuesday for a new exciting episode of the Rock and Roll Chicago podcast. Thanks for joining me. This episode of Crime Cave has been brought to you by Fortress Defense Consultants, providing security consulting for educational institutions, corporate facilities, and houses of worship, as well as pepper spray, situational awareness, and defensive firearms training for police and private citizens. Find Fortress on the web at FortressDefense.com. Contact Fortress directly at 708-522-8060 or email them at info at FortressDefense.com. Avoid being the subject of a future episode of Crime Cave.
Train with Fortress today. Until next time.